You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about the updated developmental milestones. Joining me is Dr. Kate Wallace, who is a developmental behavioral pediatrician who takes care of children in the Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics and in the Cardiac Kids Developmental Program, also with me at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Wallace. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So we're talking about this today because in February of 2022, the CDC and AAP updated the developmental milestones in the Learn the Signs Act Early program. These milestones hadn't been updated in years, and the goal here was to make it easier to identify children who would benefit from early intervention. Before we get into what the changes are in the milestones, can you tell me how these revisions were made? Who's behind them and why now? Sure. So As you mentioned, the Learn the Signs Act Early campaign has been promoted by the CDC since 2004, and the goal was to empower families to learn about child development and to help become partners to alert clinicians if they noted any developmental delays or early signs of autism. And the milestones have also been used by clinicians as benchmarks on how to understand ages at which a child should be expected to achieve a certain milestone. But over the 15 years or more that these milestones have been in place, the CDC has identified a few areas that were lacking from that initial campaign. So for example, we'll talk about the changes, but there was no guidance for 15 to 30 month visits. And they really wanted to revisit to make sure the evidence behind the milestones was strong. And so after all this time, they decided to convene a group of experts in developmental behavioral pediatrics, neurodevelopment, general pediatrics, psychology, and even had a representative from the special education system to help revisit these milestones and to develop clear criteria for how to evaluate the checklist that they were set out to revise. Well, wow, 15 years is a long time. So it does sound like it was time for revisions. And I'm glad that we're talking about this today. So most of us who haven't been practicing for that long, 15 years is most of our career. So this is the first time we've seen changes like this. Now, the prior version of the milestones identified where the average child should be, but the newer version expects that 75% of children meet each milestone. So let's apply this to patients in clinic. Previously, if patients didn't meet a few milestones, we could use like a wait and see approach, expecting that they may develop that milestone in the next few weeks after our appointment. But with the updated milestones, should we refer sooner? This is a great question, and this really gets at the crux of a lot of the changes that were made. So the change of listing milestones previously at the age when about half or 50% of children were expected to have attained them, to now listing them at the age at which 75% of children are expected to have attained them really discourages that watch and wait approach, which was pretty vague and didn't provide very clear guidance on when it was sort of a must-refer situation. 
So previously, it would be pretty easy to say, like you mentioned, that a child still had a little bit of time to develop the skill because only about half of kids would have been showing that, demonstrating that skill by that age. But now it is more clear that if a child hasn't attained it when 75% of kids have otherwise done so, it becomes more apparent that that child is delayed on that milestone. So it's not that you'll necessarily refer sooner. In fact, where there were changes in the ages of the milestone, naturally they went to later ages, but now there's just much clearer guidance about what constitutes a delay, and so it discourages that wait-and-see approach. Great. Thank you for that clarification. Now, the other thing you mentioned is that previously there were no milestones listed for the 15 and 30 month well child checks, but now we have more specific milestone checklists for these age ranges. Why is this addition so important? Yeah. So the 15 and 30 month well visits are really a component of routine well child care. And importantly, at all of the recommended While child visits, clinicians are supposed to engage families in the process of developmental surveillance. So asking about things like what concerns parents have about development, asking them about specific milestones. But we really didn't have clear guidance up to this point from the CDC, at least, about what a child at 15 or 30 months should be doing. So importantly, this provides a little bit more clarity, and we'll also talk about what this change means for families, but provides not only clinicians, but also families a little bit more guidance about what they should expect their child to be doing so that those 15 and 30 month visits are more valuable because they will allow families to engage in more conversation and dialogue about development at those ages. That's great, because we both know that kids develop so rapidly during those age ranges. And while it seems like only a few months between those appointments, we know that there can be big gains in development in that short period of time. So it's great to have as many of these little checkpoints as we can along that way. So the new guidelines have more emphasis on social and emotional development. Can you give us some examples of what some of the new milestones are in this category? Sure. So these are a lot of the milestones that actually having delays or missing these milestones may indicate some signs or symptoms of possible things like autism spectrum disorder or delays. So things like responding when you call a child's name some elements of pointing to show something that's interesting, even early on socially smiling back at caregivers and others are all parts of these milestones. And these are really a lot of the things that we track in terms of social emotional development that often are some of the first signs and symptoms that a child might have autism. So it was important to separate these. Previously, a lot of these milestones were embedded within either the communication domains or within cognitive domains, but now there's particular attention being paid to these, which I think is really helpful. That's great. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about how these revisions have been aimed at making things clearer and less ambiguity. Now, the CDC also sought to remove some of the vague language in the prior checklist to make it easier to interpret for parents and clinicians. What efforts were there to make sure, though, that parents of different educational backgrounds, income levels, and racial groups can understand and follow these checklists? Can we trust that these are culturally responsive tools? That's a really, really important and, in fact, 
quite a complicated question, but I will (laughs) share what the CDC and the team that developed these did in order to try to address that to the best of their ability. So for example, they really were very family focused in the development of these milestones and added specific examples to give families some benchmark of what that specific skill or milestone would mean or look like. They also reviewed them to determine and ensure that they were no higher than a fifth or sixth grade reading level. So trying to bring down the literacy for families who might have lower health or general literacy. The question about cultural responsiveness is really interesting and challenging because we know that there are some cultural variations in developmental expectations. One thing they did was they did test these milestones and these checklists with diverse samples of patients. Unfortunately, in the paper, they didn't really necessarily describe how diverse was defined for this purpose, but they did test them with samples of patients sort of across different areas of the United States to see if they were relevant and understandable. Only time will tell sort of how these milestones resonate with families from different cultural backgrounds. But I will say in terms of developing sort of one coherent standard, these are supposed to be normative and describe what a child should do. But this does not replace having those discussions with families about their concerns and their expectations for their children. But this can provide a little bit of explanation of when a typical child should achieve these milestones to give a little bit more guidance to that process. That's a great point. And yeah, this is just one piece of the overall picture of our developmental assessment. Now, on that theme, I guess, sometimes when I ask parents about a particular milestone in clinic, they might say something like, hmm, I never tried that with them. So that can be sometimes just a first-time parent who isn't sure what a child at that age is supposed to do, or sometimes it is cultural and it's not something that that parent was raised doing with their parents and they didn't think about doing it with their child. So how could these milestone checklists be used by parents as a guide for what's next and what other resources are there for them to help them learn maybe how to stimulate their child's development in the areas where they should be growing? Yeah, it's a great point. So the milestones are not only there to detect when something is delayed or absent, but really to help empower parents to engage in a dialogue about what their children are doing. So they can use these milestones to not only identify delays, of course, but to anticipate what a child should be learning to do next. And so even pushing that child and thinking about maybe toys or supplies or materials that might help them to achieve that next skill and might give parents ideas of what to try to get their children to do. And sometimes families are surprised that when you provide them with the right tools that they do do things that they didn't know they could. So things like if you give a child a baby doll, do they sort of naturally know to hug and try to comfort the doll or potentially feed them? I've seen families that are surprised when I hand a child a toy or item that they haven't seen before and the child actually really knows what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So it's really about empowering parents in this process. And it's awesome to see when they are engaged and so excited about what their children are learning to do. And in that vein, again, these are supposed to be family-friendly milestones and they also are accompanied by things like 
web pages, there are handouts that go along with it, as well as an app that can help parents track the skills that the child is achieving. And all of this can really help make families more active participants in the process of developmental surveillance and in promoting that next set of skills. Now, you mentioned surveillance. This is an important point to note that the CDC checklist should not replace universal developmental screening. They should not provide a risk categorization or diagnose developmental delays. Can you just frame for us how clinicians should be using these checklists? So again, I think that these milestones can really be used to help promote conversations with families. I think it also helps, and absolutely, the CDC is very clear that this does not replace developmental screening, that these should not be used as screening tools. But I do think that if families are alerted to this, given the materials ahead of time, that actually when families come into a clinical setting and complete a more standardized and validated screening tool, it might actually make their responses more accurate because they have already sort of digested some of this information and can provide more accurate responses and then potentially tried some of those things that you mentioned that we were talking about to see if their children can actually do the things. As you mentioned, some families come in not sure. They've never tried some of these things. So using the milestones can actually help them answer some of those developmental screening questions. And it's all part of this process of both surveillance and screening, which we know together are recommended to help detect delays more accurately. And in terms of detecting delays, less than a quarter of children with developmental disabilities receive early intervention services before age three, and most children with emotional, behavioral, and developmental conditions other than autism spectrum disorder do not receive services before age five. While these revised checklists are new, and we don't know yet what the impact will be on early intervention referrals, what do you anticipate will be the impact of this revision? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm hopeful that these will be adopted and used, again, to help empower families and caregivers in this process. It can provide tools even for schools to hand out materials to families to help make sure that children are on track developmentally. I think most importantly, this should give more clear guidance on when to refer a child who is not meeting these milestones in multiple areas, and hopefully that will help families and clinicians pick up on things earlier and make those referrals when they're indicated. So hopefully this will help some children who would otherwise be eligible for early intervention services come to our recognition so that they can actually be assessed for those and evaluated and hopefully qualify for those services early on. But I'm glad we're talking about this because I think that the more that people know about these new milestones, the more effective they will be at actually making change. That's great. And we will post links to the new milestones on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. But you can also find them on the CDC and AAP sites. We are so fortunate to have developmental behavioral pediatricians like yourself at CHOP helping serve our patients and their families. So thank you so much, Dr. Wallace, for joining us today, explaining these new revisions. It's very helpful and I know will really help a lot of clinicians, but also, as you mentioned, patients and their families. So thank you so much for everything that you and all of the developmental behavioral pediatricians do for our children. 
Thank you. We really rely on you as frontline clinicians to help us identify kids who need additional supports and services. So thank you for all that you do and for shining light on what I think is an important and exciting new update that was overdue and hopefully will be more usable and helpful to children and families and clinicians alike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.